You are listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. Well, we'll be in, uh, in 1 Peter today. If you want to start uh, flipping there, one of the questions I want to start with here is very simply, what is your source of joy? Have you ever thought about that? What is the source of joy in your life? Where does that joy come from? And probably most Americans today might say something like, uh, my joy comes from my, uh, my health or my family or my, uh, my hobby that I have. I love doing that. Many would also say if you're working age, you might be saying out of my job. My job is the thing that brings me the most joy. And I think there's a couple challenges with some of these. Um, They can become idols very quickly, but we also know these things will not ultimately bring us joy. They can be taken from us at a moment's notice. In fact, um, some of you, maybe if you're retired, you might think, well, I used to find joy in my job, and now I'm trying to figure out you know, where to find that joy. Although some people that are retired apparently are going, boy, I'm glad I'm retired when they're looking at post-COVID and everything that was happening. And um, there was actually something uh, this last week in the Wall Street Journal that um, it says Americans are unhappier at work than they have been in years. Uh, This is a Gallup poll and then an HR company that surveyed 57,000 employees. And here's here's what they found. Despite wage increases, more paid time off, and greater control over where they work, The number of U.S. employees who say they are angry, stressed, and disengaged is climbing. Job satisfaction scores have fallen to their lowest point since early 2020 after a 10% drop this year alone. They said in interviews with workers around the country, it's clear the unhappiness is a part of rethinking of work life that began in 2020. The sources of workers' discontent range from inflation, which is erasing much of the pay gains, to the still unsettled nature of the workday. People chafe against being micromanaged back to offices, yet they also find isolating aspects of hybrid and remote work. A cooling job market, especially white-collar roles, is leaving many professionals feeling stuck. And their summary was all the businesses they talked to are saying, we're doing everything we can, but we still come up short. So let me summarize. We're giving them more money, but because of inflation, it doesn't really help. We're giving them more time off. We're, giving, we're letting them even go work from the home and work remotely. But when they work remotely, they go, I feel isolated. And so they go, okay, well, you can come back to work. And so they come back to work, and they come back to work, and they're chafing, it says, against uh, the micromanagement that happens from being at work. And so they go, okay, well, then do you want to work remotely? Yes, I'll work remotely. They go work remotely, and they go, I feel so isolated. We'll come back to work. I feel so micromanaged. And they go, do the hybrid thing then. You can do some there and some here. And what they found is that people would feel isolated here and then they would feel micromanaged here. And it was like the worst of both worlds. And so that's, that's where this is. And so I look at this and I'm seeing all this research and just going, this can't possibly be the sole or even primary source of joy for our lives. And, I, and you could take almost any of those things I just mentioned And all of them, at some point, you'll find discontent at the end. 1 Peter chapter 2 gives us four things. And this is all I want to, I would give you this little early Christmas message here. I want to give you four reasons for indestructible joy in Jesus Christ. That's our source of joy. They're right here in this text. There's more. I'll, I'll hit four. So the context here is he's talking about there are some who have rejected God, they're not Christians, and so this is how they um, see the world, this is the truth about them, and then it, it transitions to talk to Christians. And he says, but you are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood. This is 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let me give you three of the reasons that we have to find joy in Jesus Christ. Just, just from that little text, and there's another one coming up. I'm gonna, some, some of them are technically different, but there's a lot of uh, similarities, so I'm going to lump a couple together. Um, you are a chosen race. It says a holy nation, and then it says you were not a people, but now you are a people. And those, have a, those three things have a lot in, uh, in common. It's Old Testament language, what was spoken about Israel in um, Exodus 19, especially also a, little, a couple times in Deuteronomy. You see it under David's reign. Some of this language is used as well. And it says a chosen race. Now, when you hear that, to hear a chosen race, you can imagine how somebody could take that and, and abuse that. Um, it doesn't mean race in the way that you and I are thinking about it, I'm sure. The word is ganaz, where we get this word, uh, if you saw it written, you'd see it look, it's the word where we get the word genealogy. And so the idea is you are a chosen race or you are a chosen people. Um, the word could also be translated descendants or offspring, or my favorite translation would be family. You're a chosen family. That's what he just said. This is common bonds that unite us. It used to be applied to Israel in the Old Testament, and now he's taking the same language and applying it to the church of Jesus Christ in the new. And so what he's saying is these are common bonds that we have across all the barriers that we might have otherwise over um, traditions that you might have, over language barriers, over the color of your skin, over how much money you have or don't have. All of those things, he says, he says, just fade into the background because you are a people. If you have Christ as Savior, that's your people, Christians. You're a part of that. You're a part of the biggest, hugest movement that ever was or ever will be. This really meets our need for belonging. You know, I look today and I think oftentimes people have a really difficult choice of figuring out who's my, who's, who's my political leader, my political party, because, boy, this person seems to, like, rally a whole bunch of people, and so if I kind of go there, then all of a sudden I, I've got my people, I've got my sense of belonging, and I've formed an identity by being in a group of people. And the Christian life says, good news, you don't have to, like, compromise and try and go, this is my primary allegiance. You can go first and foremost you know who your brothers and sisters are? The people all over the world that know and love Jesus Christ. That's what he just said. We don't have to settle for a secondary type thing. We can say, first and foremost, I am in the family of God. All over the world. I remember I was um, probably 10 or so years ago, I was, uh, I was in Haiti um, and we're on a mission, doing some mission work and we're going through Port-au-Prince, which is the capital. And they have some... Um, some kind of superstitions and also just some sort of cultural things. They don't want Americans to come down and take their picture. They don't really take a lot of pictures anyway, but they don't want you to take their picture. So we were there, and of course, while we're there, we're riding in the back of the most rickety, like, it's, I don't even want to call it a truck. We're riding in the back of it, and it's open air, and I, it's amazing we're all here and doing well and everything today. It was crazy. Um, but we're riding along, and there's some people behind us, and one of the guys goes, is like, I know we're not supposed to take pictures, but, and he decided to take a picture. 
And so he got his phone, very slick, he got his phone and we were all, we were sitting there banging against like this little bar behind us. And he gets his phone and real slick just kind of holds it down and just snaps a few pictures. And of course, as soon as he, it was like slow motion, as soon as he started to do it, I saw this one guy look and look down right where his, where his phone was. And then he yelled something in Creole, which I have no idea, I don't know any words in Creole. And he starts yelling in Creole and then the driver's like, did you guys take a picture? And I was like, he took a picture, I didn't take a picture. And so he just like takes off and he goes even faster. And this other guy who saw him take a picture like grabs a couple buddies and they start running after us. So we're in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, and two guys are running, three guys are running after us, yelling in Creole, and we're in this rickety thing, and it's our only hope of, of getting away. So we're taking off down the thing, and I, I have to say, I wasn't, I was very unsettled. I really thought we were going to be okay, but it was pretty unsettling, I have to say. And we're driving down the road, and uh, as we're getting close, the guy's driving, and he, he says something like, um, he says, um, the church is our next left. And there was something in me that just kind of went, okay, good, we're, we're almost to the church. And we pulled up to this thing, and it's a 90-degree angle. He didn't really slow down too much, and so he just like whipped it around, and we're you know, falling everywhere, and these guys are still chasing us, even though the distance was getting farther and farther, so we were feeling okay. But then we pulled down this street, and here we are in the middle of Haiti, totally out of our comfort zone. It is, it's the poorest uh, country in the Western Hemisphere. There is absolute just demonic activity that's happening there. The occult just runs wild there. And for some reason, all the stuff that was unsettling behind me, we pulled down this road. And at the end of the road was the church. And right up top, a big old cross right on top. Everything that was going on behind me, I just thought, oh, there's my people. Never met them, don't know anything about them, but there was something safe and good about knowing God's people are here. When I go there, no matter what's happening, I'm gonna go inside and I'm going to find family. That's what he just said. That's what you're a part of. You're part of the global family of God. But this could come with challenges. I sort of liken it to like a, like a mega church. Like if you have 2,000 people sitting there worshiping together, and then you go, well, this is great. I like some of the aspects of having all these people. But at the same time, you go, the, the kind of the bigger it gets, the more I sort of feel like a number. The more, you know, the, the less significant I really feel in the midst of all this. And he answers that too. He says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And then it says, a people for his own possession. And this is right from, it's from Exodus 19, Deuteronomy 26, I believe it is. And then in the reign of David, they use this term quite a bit. Reign of Solomon, they do as well. To talk about the king of Israel and how everything that he has is his, yet at the same time, he had a unique, um, he had a unique bit of treasure that he knew every single ounce of it. Man, think about that. You're the king. Something is going to get gone in your entire kingdom. But he's like, there is a group of, there's a group of treasure that you take one penny, and I will know it. It is, um, they, they, would, they talked about it with the same word. They would say that is the king's private possessions or his treasured possession. And here it's adopting the same language, and it's saying, you are a part of the, the church of Jesus Christ the world over. But in the midst of all that, you are a treasured possession. He 
knows you. It would almost, I don't have a good illustration, it would almost be like this. Like if everybody on the planet came together for worship one Sunday morning, or all the Christians came together for worship one Sunday morning, and um, you, had the, you had the worship service, and then you left, and you talked to a neighbor, and they go, oh, how was church? And you said, the church was great. And they go, well, how many people were there? And you said, there were like two billion of us that were all gathered together, and that were singing, and that were worshiping, and all that together. Um, that could be great. Like if you just get the imagery of that, that's what's happening, is there's a couple billion of us on the planet that are worshiping Jesus. But then imagine like how lost you would feel in that unless, what if um, there's a pastor and we're leaving and Nikki and I and our kids are leaving and he's standing at the door shaking her hand and I go, hey, it's you know, great to see you, nice service, whatever. And he goes, oh, I'm so glad you're here. James David Gribnitz, born April 10th, 1975, and your wife, Nicolette Lynn Gribnitz, and her birthday, and her social security number, and there's your kids. Hey, and uh, you're at school right now. Tell me about school, and tell me about this class you have with Miss So-and-so, and just starts going through like every single detail of our lives. First of all, it's going to take a long time to get out. I'm just going to tell you that right now, but think about that. Like we're, we're all together, yet at the same time walking out, and he knows the details of who I am today what I've been doing, I've been walking around seeing people and I've been trying to use everybody's first name when I see them. I got about a, maybe an A minus or so today of this little congregation that we've got here and I've been here for eight years and I would do, and I, cause I don't want to get it wrong. I didn't look at a name tag and I was just trying to call names. But can you imagine the church of two billion where our head, Jesus Christ, knows us all? That's what we're a part of. Now, the other problem with that, though, is that sounds like a pretty great group. Cool, the Church of Jesus Christ, the biggest, the biggest, the biggest group, the biggest family. It, it, it blows through every cultural barrier you can imagine. We have a, a perfect head, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then to go, oh my gosh, that sounds great, but what if I get booted? Like, is there something I could do that's going to get me kicked out of this? And what he says here is he says, um, you are God's people once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In other words, what do you got to do to punch your ticket to get in this thing? It's the mercy of God. It's not be awesome enough and then you get to get in. It is come broken, hurting person and come and say, Jesus Christ, I trust in you. And we are in there on the basis of his mercy. The basis is his forgiveness of us. So you've got the biggest group in the world that you're a part of. Your belonging is met more than you can imagine. Yet you are known intimately. And the way you are in this group is by the mercies of God. Martin Luther said it like this. Because one of the things that the enemy would love to do is to make you think you're too bad to get to be a part of this. Martin Luther said this. He says, when Satan tells me I'm a sinner, it comforts me greatly, for I know that Christ died for sinners. Or I don't know who to credit this to, but um, somebody said, when God put a calling on your life, he already factored in your own stupidity. Thank God. All the screw-ups, all the public and private everything, we are there because of the mercies of God. I kind of feel like, okay, that's enough. This is great, but there's more. One of the other things that gives us indestructible joy because of what Jesus Christ did is our greatest fear in life is gone. 
Verse 11, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This idea of the day of visitation is one of two things. It's, it's the day that you meet God, which could happen because Jesus returns, that Jesus pays us a visit. Or it could be the end of our life here and we go to visit him. So probably since this is in the first century, I'm going to just talk about it as um, the last day that we have here on earth when we go and we meet Jesus Christ. And the gospel says that day is a day for joy, not fear. Um, Leo Tolstoy wrote a little book called A Confession. And it's like 77 pages on my Kindle. It's a pretty short one. But he started wrestling with this. So he's a guy, he went to church. Uh, his parents were pretty heavy-handed with him. And um, he had some bad experiences. And uh, so he, he left the faith. And then um, Tolstoy did. He started to think about if God is not really there, what is the meaning of life? And what actually happened was he started to think about what happens after this life. Like, what do I do? How can I reconcile those things without God? And he had three different ways that he, uh, that he came up with besides of having a fourth view, which to say there is a God. But the first thing he tried to do is he did something called, uh, he called it Epicureanism. Epicureanism says this. Epicureanism is, uh, he would go to all his friends and say, okay, if there's no life after this, what am I supposed to do? And they said, oh, just relax, you, you morose, you know, uh, Russian poet. Just go and have fun and go to the beach and be with a beautiful woman and, and have a glass of wine and just eat well and just travel the world and just enjoy life. They, um, uh, Tolstoy called it licking the honey. He said, I'm gonna go through life and I'm gonna try to lick the honey, like the sweet stuff of life. That was going to be his answer for a life that was pointless. And he found a couple problems with it. One of the problems he found was he said, uh, he said there's never enough honey to be licked. In other words, you're going to have to keep finding things over and over and over and over and over, and it's never going to be enough. The other thing he found, too, is he says, and even if that does work, it only works for a very, very small percentage of the world. And those who are poor, those who are disadvantaged, just trample on them. If it's really just about me enjoying my life, who needs them? And he said, this doesn't work. So he tried to come up with another way to think about it. The second one is um, there was a, he, he went through the logical end of saying there is no God. It's just this life, this painful life, the absurdity of life, he called it. Uh, he called it the absurd joke of life. Uh, to go through this life and then there's nothing after he said the logical thing to do is live in despair. And if that's going to be the end anyway of nothingness, get there quicker. And his, his um, conclusion was you should just commit suicide. So he, there was a time in his life, it was so dark, he said, I would not carry a gun, a knife, or a rope because I was so scared that I'd have a moment of clarity and go, yeah, this is the only logical solution, and he'd take his own life. And so he's writing and he says, this is, this is not right. This is not right at all. So he came up with a third option as well. He called it Ignorance. And here's what he said. He said, no matter how often I may be told, you cannot understand the meaning of life, so do not think about it, but live. He says, I can no longer do that. I've already done it for too long. Here's what he just said. They said, you know what? Uh, he talked to his buddies and they all said, you know, the, uh, the idea of a life without God, um, that worldview, he says, th they would say, it works great as long as you don't actually think about 
what you believe. And he just said, well, what kind of a worldview is that? And he said, I can't do that because I've already thought about it too much. Imagine having a worldview that says it works as long as you don't really think about what you believe. You know what the Christian worldview says? Think about it. Think deeply about God and what he has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. And every end of that, the more you press in, the more you press in, you know what you find? Joy. Joy. Tolstoy turned back towards faith later in life. That's what he came to with option four. And here's what he said. He had these kind of dialogues with himself and he said, he exists, I said to myself. And I had only for an instant to admit that and at once life rose within me and I felt the possibility and joy of being. And more than ever before, all within me and all around me lit up and the light did not again abandon me. So listen, man, as Christians, we're a part of something huge. We're a part of something eternal. We're a part of something that cuts across every barrier that you can possibly think of, yet in the midst of it, you're not just like, eh, you're just one of two billion. You are intimately known by God himself. You are in because of the mercies of God, not because you're so great. And the greatest fear ever, the day of death, can be the happiest day for the Christian. Thomas Watson says this, He says, death is a triumphant chariot to carry every child of God to his father's mansion house. Four reasons for indestructible joy because of what Jesus Christ has done. And he gives the purpose of the joy too. Uh, If you remember in verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We are joy bringers. Christians are joy bringers to the dark and lonely world. The problem is some Christians can recite that we have joy in the Lord, but everything about them acts just like somebody else in the world who's just dark and depressed and looking to find joy in other things. So I was about, uh, I was about 10 years old, 11 years old, something like that. I was in my church in... Um, in Irving, Texas, a little Methodist church, and the pastor got up, and it was about this time of year, and, uh, and the, the, uh, uh, he gave us a message, and I think it was on joy, I remember it being like really uplifting and upbeat and things like that, and then he went back and sat right there, we called them the thrones, the pastors would sit on, you ever been in a church like that? He walked back to his throne and sat down, and then another guy got up off his throne and walked out to the front, and he was the, uh, the minister of music at that church. And um, he stood up to close the service after this whole message on joy. And um, here's what I remember happening. See if you see something. Hang on. (laughs) Sorry. See if you see something wrong with this. All right, ready? Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Thank you. See a lot of laughter at my singing. Did you notice this? 
It's exactly what he did. The most joyful, upbeat song, and he looked like he was having the worst day of his life. And I remember at like 10 or 11 or whatever it was, and I'm watching this guy, hand in his pocket, just sitting here going like this, and the word joy coming out of his mouth. My sister, my big sis, is like down a couple seats from me, and I'm going, don't look at Janet, don't look at her, don't look at her, don't look at her. And then I made the mistake, out of the corner of my eye, I see her shoulders start to do this, and then I started to laugh. My parents were even like, yeah, that's pretty comical, what's happening right now? that he's up there singing, hey, you guys should all know about the joy of the Lord. Of course, I look like I'm having a miserable day. And I wonder how many Christians would go, man, I want everybody to know the joy of the Lord. I don't know that I'm gonna step into that myself. I'm gonna be like the world, but I hope they know joy. And the reality is, we are to be joy bringers in the world. Nobody is going to believe that there is joy in the Lord if his followers don't have that first. That's our job, to be joy bringers. We're gonna take communion together in just a moment. And as we take communion, we're gonna be singing carols together. Um, I hope you can come forward just radiating with the joy of Jesus, remembering what he has done, because it says in Hebrews, do you know why Jesus went to the cross? It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Because to bring salvation to us was his joy, even though it cost him the cross.